Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. February the 17th. It's morning in California, early evening in Europe. And the headlines today remain about the consequences of COVID. Biden and Harris are pushing their almost $2 trillion relief plan. But a lot of the news remains rather concerning in addition to COVID itself. According to the Washington Post, millions of jobs probably aren't coming back even after the pandemic ends. In other words, it seems as if COVID has been a revolution that has transformed how we live, how we work, and how we think. Um, And if that subtitle uh, rings a bell in your mind, it's because my guest today on the show uh, Ken Kukier is the author uh, of a book with a similar subtitle, uh, Big Data, one of the he's co-author, one of the, the best books, I think, of all about uh, big tech and the impact of technology, big data on, on the world. Uh, he wrote a book, Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work and think. Uh, Ken, should you have titled COVID rather than big data? Gosh, no. Um, uh, At the time, though, uh, we were well aware of these global threats. I mean, the interesting thing is that those of us in the circles of both technology and current affairs, politics, emergency response, uh, crisis preparation, critical infrastructure protection, were always well aware of the threat of pandemics. It was, you know, as we learned after lockdown that it was something that would regularly be trotted out, whether at TED Talks or certainly in the circles that I was swimming in. And in fact, curiously enough, in the very introduction of uh, the first pages of the book Big Data, we talk about flus and we even hint at the possibility of a pandemic. And what we talk about specifically is the idea that Google came up with research that could identify the prevalence of the seasonal flu based on search queries alone. Now, keep in mind today in 2021, that seems like a no brainer. Like, of course, you'd be able to monitor search activity and where people are searching for certain terms, terms that you don't know in advance what they would be because it wouldn't be like, I have the flu or I feel fluey, but it could be things that would not be so obvious, but would still point to the prevalence of a flu. I've lost my taste buds, in other words. Well, precisely right, exactly right. And in fact, why I'm so disappointed in the current environment of using data to fight against COVID is that for all the potential that we could apply this tool of big data, machine learning and AI and data analysis, just very generally to protecting people and getting a better handle on the crisis and the disease and and staunching the disease, we're not doing that. And so in a way, 
it's it's been a complete surprise for me. It's been a failure of our institutions and our leaders not to apply big data. It's not been a failure of big data itself. It's just that if you have a power tool and you have like if you have a jackhammer and you have a hammer and you're such a thick dolt that you're going to use a hammer on the asphalt where a jackhammer would be better, but you can't blame the jackhammer, right? The power tool. You can just say the person who is using it uh, should have thought through a little bit more clearly what they're going to do. And if you have a society that accepts it, and you have a media that doesn't call it out, then that's a problem. So that's the environment that we're in. I'm, I'm very surprised and saddened that that should be the case. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keenon for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. Well, Ken, you're talking to me from London. You're a senior editor at The Economist. You're an American in London. I'm a, a Brit on the West Coast. So when you talk about we, I think you're talking about uh, America uh, and uh, the UK in particular. Both countries have failed dismally, I think, with COVID. But some countries have done pretty well. Taiwan, of course, um, comes to mind. Um, uh, Korea. Um, does the success of countries like Taiwan and Korea in confronting COVID, does that speak of the fact that these countries are actually essentially big data countries already and that use the technologies and the political architecture to confront this pandemic? Um, 
partially, but not so much. So the case for partially is that they did use data effectively. They both had apps that were able to track the prevalence of it uh, and do contact tracing. Taiwan very famously created something they called a digital fence that would be able to see through data whether people were complying with, with stay-at-home isolation orders. So the case for yes is there. But behind that was something else which is more important, which is that both countries, and also New Zealand for that matter, they framed the issue, they mentally framed the issue differently and better than it was done in the West, in particular America and Britain. What they did is they didn't look at this as something like a souped up seasonal flu. They looked at this something like closer to SARS or Ebola as really a deadly pandemic. They took it much more seriously. And so they reached for a sort of a policy of elimination where in the West, in particular America and Britain, run by populist leaders, they, they chose a solution that looked like mitigation, which is sort of take it on the chin, as Prime Minister Johnson referred to it, or um, it will just suddenly disappear, as Donald Trump called it. So they were just hoping for the best. While countries who had actually faced SARS, or New Zealand was in the vicinity, the neighborhood of SARS from a decade ago, they really understood the severity of it. And because they took dramatic action early, they staunched the virus and did a good job and they used data for that purpose. But it wasn't their use of data that was so primal. It was their mental, their mindset that said it was something that they had to act and respond to very quickly and seriously too. Uh, as you know, uh, the American press loves to bash America and they've been structure of the state here. Sweden, um, uh, Ken, which seems to be a, a parable of how not to deal with the pandemic, a, a country which you'd expect to use the tools of big data like Taiwan and, 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 um, and, 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 and Korea, but failed. What does the Swedish case tell us? So again, too, the Swedish case shows why having the right perspective on a crisis, uh, framing it correctly, is absolutely essential. And that your the tools that you apply to it are a result of how you have sort of conceptualized the crisis that you face. So with Sweden, they saw very much that this should be a mitigation of sort of almost a voluntary mitigation approach where they didn't need to try to eliminate it. In fact, they wanted it to burn through the population and to develop herd immunity. Now, if you believe that this is something that looks like and has the same features as a bad seasonal virus, a seasonal flu, in which some people regrettably do die, but it is not a catastrophic number, that, you, that, that might have seemed like the right answer. Now, I, I also personally believe that a wise society wouldn't have come to that conclusion and would say, hey, if you can save life, that is the function of the state, and so you should. And it's not at absolutely any cost, but you try to minimize the cost, and places like New Zealand were able to do it, so you can keep the costs low while you also save people's lives. I think that's essential. I think citizens demand that. However, in the case of Sweden, they got it wrong. It was a test. It was a natural experiment. A lot of people warned them to say this wasn't probably going to be, work out well for you. Uh, and so they suffered uh, worse than their neighbors by having a very 
um, non, um, a very lackadaisical and, and non-rigid uh, response to it until finally last autumn, they actually had to throw in the towel and they actually did impose lockdowns and, and restrictions and isolations. Um, now, that was like seven, eight months late and after is already spreading through the community like wildfire. It's nice to see the Scandinavians getting something wrong because at least uh, in the United States, all we ever hear is about the Danish or the Swedish or the or the Finnish or the Norwegian models. So it's nice to see that sometimes the Scandinavians don't get it right. Uh, Ken, last year I wrote a piece uh, for LitHub suggesting that 2020 was the year that software finally ate the world. Perhaps it had eaten it before, but the meal was consumed in, in 2020. Do you think that, that the, COVID, uh, the, 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 the COVID pandemic has profoundly compounded the role of technology in the world, particularly in, in economics and particularly when it comes to surveillance? No, not yet. Um, I think that that still that that still may happen. I think there's it's whetted the appetite of people to see the the potential. But if you look at how we've actually applied technology in an era of COVID, I think what's remarkable is the fact that we did so little. So just imagine uh, what you could do with a mobile phone if you wanted to. It identifies not only where people are, but who other people are in their proximity, where they're going how long that interaction took place, the distance between the interaction, if we wanted to see the intensity of say, the Bluetooth signal between the two, if we, if we wanted to turn on that feature and monitor it, we could, we could see who is in their contact database and find out who in that database they're actually seeing on a regular basis versus not, versus people that aren't in their database and therefore are just sort of strangers, right? There's just a lot of information, really rich information. We can find out where they're sleeping at night because it's where it's stationary. And who they're sleeping with. Precisely right. I mean, so it can get to this high degree of specificity. And some of this information could be really helpful in the case of a deadly pandemic. But what's interesting is no, very few jurisdictions, in fact, in some ways, no jurisdictions really turned on that feature. Now, Israel were, was able to use counterterrorism uh, data approaches and applied it to contact tracing to a limited extent. Uh, there was also cases where, of course, China and Korea used sort of data approach, you know, more rigorous data approaches to understand contact tracing. And a lot of people would appreciate that because there was a sort of disclosure that they were doing this. But for most jurisdictions in places like the UK, they, their contact tracing apps completely failed. There was no mandatory usage of it, where in Taiwan you needed to have your phone with you and that you would be prodded if you had an isolation order. You'd be prodded with questions throughout the day that within a minute or two you had to respond to, so you couldn't leave your phone anywhere. They would sometimes call to see that you are where you were, and they would know immediately in real time if you actually left your digital fence or not. And you'd be penalized up to about 10,000 US dollars to if you did that. And you were also rewarded by about $100 a day for staying a little bit less than that, but maybe- No, so this is classic nudge technology or nudge tactics, uh, behavioral <laughs> economics coming to government. A lot of people are gonna be watching this, Ken, and being rather chilled. They're, they're gonna say, well, it's all very well that Taiwan and Korea and Israel are, are pioneers, but they're doing away with anonymity uh, online. 
Uh, here we have, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Mike Masnick of TechDirt, um, one of the one of the internet's great defenders of anonymity, suggesting that we shouldn't get rid of it because of social media. Do you think that COVID represents ultimately the death knell, the final nail in the, the coffin of online anonymity? That ultimately we're going to have to reveal ourselves because of the pandemic, because we're not going to be able to travel or get jobs or find. Uh, sexual partners without proving that we're free of the virus? No. I mean, I no, I don't think that. And the reason why is that we haven't used data in the ways that we could. We have all this capability and potentiality, but the old world, our old institutions and our fears over privacy prevented that. Now, I think we could, I'm an optimist, so I believe that we can have it both ways. I think that we could, I think it'd be possible if there was a government that was honest with people and had integrity and showed their self-restraint and discipline. Granted, not many governments that you see today because we're in a very strange period in history, but some governments could have, you know, places like Belgium or the Nordics, where there's a lot more social trust, particularly to institutions, to say, here is the data that we're capturing. Here is how it's going to be governed. Here is the independent body that will be supervising that we do it. That's made up of these eminent, you know, blue panel, um, blue ribbon sort of panel of the, of the, eminent establishment of people that engender social trust, whether it's from politics or entertainment or sports or literature, when God forbid, journalism. So you can see that the public feels that it's represented. There's people looking after their interests and they have the transparency to say, we're gonna collect this data. We're gonna use it for this purpose. We're gonna keep it for this time. Here's how we're not gonna use it. And we're gonna delete it after its use. Now, this is basically how in some cases, how censuses work, because censuses have a lot of personal information, but they show with integrity over the years, they violated it in the past, we can go there, but they show that this is how we use it and we're not gonna use it for these other purposes. So I believe that we could have had that, we had an opportunity, it was a test for us to achieve that and we didn't. So I think that we should have. And I sadly, I think that in the post COVID world, We'll see a little bit of a flare up of that if there's COVID passports and other ways in which we're going to be very reticent to interact with people. However, what we know from the post pandemic of all other pandemics environment is that that memory of fear and crisis and response, it dissipates and then people go back to their old ways. And I think that we'll be stuck with our old ways. I know you're excited also by new technologies. Uh, not everyone will be familiar with the acronym PET, PET in, uh, not PET, Privacy Enhancing Technologies. Uh, you've said to me that you think that these privacy enhancing technologies can really represent a, a renaissance in the tech industry, both in economic terms, but also in maintaining our rights as individual citizens. Tell me about PETs, Ken. Sure, it's, it's a new acronym uh, and it doesn't refer to any one particular technology, but a basket of ones. There's differential privacy, there's homomorphic encryption, there's federated learning. And these are basically different ways to apply very elaborate mathematics, cryptography basically, to the problem of how to keep data private while still run analyses on it. Now, that sounds really spooky and sounds almost unrealistic. Like, can you really say encrypt data, keep it scrambled so that the person who wants to run an analysis of it, say, look at lots of patient records to find out um, what works and what doesn't for certain forms of treatment to know how to respond to it best, right? And let's say the patient record is about um, 
pregnancy or um, or a drug abuse, right, etc. Something that would be highly sensitive, not just an ordinary broken bone. So the answer is yes, you can, right? With using high-end math, there's different techniques you can have to either scramble the data or fuzz and blur the data so that you can get a true, that the person who's crunching the numbers can't actually look at the record or the actual specific record and know with a degree of specificity what's in it, but can actually get a model that they need. The algorithm develops a model, trains a model that will then be all that they wanted it for in the first place, which you can't then read you can't reverse engineer the record, but you can then apply to actually run your analyses to save people's lives when you want to save people's lives. What's the best treatment in a given circumstance? So what's so interesting about this, whether it's a financial uh, institution or whether it's a hospital or it's any other way, whether it's just geolocation data from mobile phones for people and how the state might want to know where to build new transport networks, but not want to know who's sleeping with whom because that should be private information that there's a way to do that. This is sort of, to me, this is so early, it reminds me a little bit like packet switching before there was the internet or really early distributed database technology before there was blockchain. We're, but we're getting there. And, I, and what I see is that this could be quite transformative. And a lot of organizations are already experimenting with it, particularly in healthcare, which I find to be totally glorious. And I think that it's going to be, I have an intuition that this is going to un, be an important element in the future and going to unlock a lot of the private data, which is sort of the dark side of the moon of how to improve society. We, it's there, we need to use it. There's centuries worth of unease in accessing, either knowing you should access the record or then accessing it and running the analyses to get findings from it. But if we can overcome that unease with this new technique, then we will actually be able to make some meaningful changes in lots of domains in the world that today aren't being changed because there's this chilling effect on not wanting to use private information. Ever the optimist, Ken, the American in London. I'm ever the pessimist, the Brit in California. Uh, you talk about PET in the very early stages. One thing that isn't in the early stages is the financial blockchain revolution, uh, represented mostly by Bitcoin. The news today is that it hit the 50K milestone. Um, and there's increasing concern and discussion about whether it's the digital tulip or is, is Bitcoin for real? Is it truly revolutionizing the world? There was a fascinating piece by Rana Faruhar in the FT suggesting that Bitcoin's rise reflects America's decline and Bitcoin is essentially in the long run replacing the US dollar as the operating currency in the global system. Uh, before we get to that, is Bitcoin for real now? And what is its connection with your big data revolution? Is it the financial heart of that big data revolution? So I've, I've got a vested interest in this insofar as I don't own Bitcoin but I have fantasies of having spent like $100 on 10,000 Bitcoins. So I could be a we all have those fantasies, Ken. Let's, in, let's, not, let's not introduce that kind of pornography to this family show. Completely, completely. I, sort of, one can't sort of do the dishes without thinking about how all this could have been used for great possibilities. So, the, um, so as someone who doesn't own Bitcoin, uh, I have been watching it in amazement and thinking, what is actually happening here? What does this actually mean? I'm not convinced that, I, I think America is facing decline and declinism 
as two separate phenomena. Uh, people have been talking about American declinism, you know, throughout the 20th century, from the 1920s to the 1950s to the 1970s and onward. So that's not new. Um, the fact that America is declining relatively as the rest of the world is is you know is growing, the rise of the rest is just simply a mathematical reality that the country has to face. Um, you could look at the last four years of America and see that it seemed like it was accelerated, but be that as it may. I'm not certain that the effect that that, that Bitcoin truly is a, a a truly linked to the rise of the rest in American decline American declinism, other than the fact that it is true that there is a libertarian a crypto libertarian streak in Silicon Valley of people who got in early of Bitcoin or who are the great promoters are catching a lot of you know are are catching the the the, the airwaves to, to make that point. But from large institutions, Bitcoin is a is like gold uh, insofar as it's a it's a store of value, but it's not a means of exchange. And the dollar is a means of exchange as well as a store of value. So I don't want to give too much to Bitcoin. I'm to be honest, I'm mystified by why it should be so so strong. And I do ponder without any, with any, without anything more than, than intuition to wonder, is it not the digital tulip? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would love, I'm still watching it and trying to figure it out. Well, it may be the digital tulip. Maybe that's the, the title of your next book. Uh, Ken, I know you've spent a lot of time in Japan. You were the economist's man in Japan for many years. And I'm curious as your, your take on um, China, Bitcoin, and indeed, China's rising importance in the global economy and the impact, of course, on COVID on China, both domestically and internationally. The, well, is it the rise of China's digital currency or the rise of China in general? Uh, perhaps they're the same thing. Um, I, I'm showing for people listening uh, um, a cover about uh, China's new digital currency. Uh, China's been quite influential, I think, in in, um, in 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 the digital currency revolution, but does COVID stepping back from the digital currency, Ken? Does does the China model does does the COVID crisis prove the China model? Because it does seem as if China has more successfully dealt with COVID uh, than than the West uh, and and countries like Korea and Singapore and Taiwan are kind of caught in between. Such a good question. I think it's I think it's really an essential question. I'm glad you brought it up. The uh, I I I do not believe so, but I will acknowledge that um, democracy, like liberalism, always takes it on the chin. Uh, it's it's sometimes messy and slow to respond, where authoritarian states uh, can respond much more quickly. And so, and particularly the East Asian model, where there's a very strong state. So. I don't think Japan, for example, is an authoritarian state, but is certainly in that East Asian model um, with such centralized power and a very respectful, homogenous and, and sort of, I'll call it socially obedient, but in a good way, not a bad way, populace, that, you, that when you pull levers in that culture, those sorts of cultures, political cultures, um, you can do things really quickly. So I think there's a huge appeal for countries looking around the world, whether you're in Africa and Latin America in particular, developing countries, to look at the China model and look at the, Bay, at the Washington DC model and to think, 
America's tearing itself apart and for the last four years was completely ineffective and last year of COVID failed miserably. Britain, I would say same thing as well. Whereas you look at China and you say, these people really understood what to do and how to take dramatic action very quickly. So in the short term, it looks like, yeah, this works really well. But I think the nature of short-term decisions are such that, and, and of in authoritarian cultures, they're going to do well in that sort of situation. And if they make the wrong decision, if it's sort of more like Mussolini, it doesn't do so well at all. But that's just sort of where they chose. In the long term, though, let's take a look at other scenarios of why democracy might actually be better for countries. Certainly it's better for individual freedom, but why for people and for prosperity? It's because you have freedom to experiment. If the world is a static place and you know what the answer is already, then you simply execute. But in a world that's dynamic and adaptive, where the answers aren't obvious and there's new challenges that you've never confronted before, I tend to believe that things that enhance human freedom and creativity, like what we see with democracy in the West, that that would be a better way forward to solve problems than the authoritarian model. However, I'm being proved wrong. Let me ac accept that because if you look at the issue of climate change, China seems to be much more, have a, have a better policy hold on it. I think there's still a big smokestack there and America's using green technologies and innovation to winnow climate on a, on a local and state-based level. But from a national level, China is taking it, it seems to be more seriously than the Trump administration did. But of course, the Biden administration has now a, a, a climate czar. So it's still to be seen. I think the jury is out whether, whether one model is better than another. But I tend to think that the model that, that enhances transparency and freedom, like we're seeing with liberalism in the West, is better than one that restricts human freedom and is less transparent. Finally, Ken, your, your day job is at The Economist, that great bastion, London-based bastion of internationalism. Um, I'm curious as to your take on the future of internationalism, of, of globalism. You, you talk about China as an authoritarian state that also is, in, in many ways, it seems sympathetic to globalization. The, I think the election between Biden and, and, and Trump was, was in some ways a referendum on America's role in the world. Um, Gillian Tett, always an excellent journalist, has uh, a new piece in the FT, Globalization 2.0, the, the new rules of connection, whether we, the, the fact that digital information is more ubiquitous doesn't mean that empathy and understanding are rising. The, the Economist has an interesting piece too about COVID saying there's going to be enough vaccines if rich countries share. In overall terms, standing back from COVID, do you think that 2020 has been good for globalization and for global understanding? So good as a question. I'm so interesting. Um, I, I almost wish that you'd asked it first because we could have spent the whole show built around this. Well, that's <laughs> why I didn't. So that we, we uh... <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think it swings both ways, right? So the, the globalism has certainly suffered uh, in 2020 because of lockdown, because we have imposed lots of border restrictions, right? And as right, we should have, right? So so there was a lot less globalization because we were- The future of travel is still very much up in the air where you and I are used to jumping on and off planes. I haven't been anywhere. You haven't been anywhere for months. Completely. And so, so, uh, so let me say superficially, 
on the surface, globalism looks like it, 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 was, it suffered in 2020 and the culture that was created around it in which we try to throw up the, the, the bridges. And what was so interesting about this as well is that the playbook, uh, and literally, I mean, not metaphorically, but literally the playbook for pandemic response when you did tabletop exercises was that there was always some guy in the room who said, we're gonna close the borders and, and block you know, people from coming in from the, the, the infected place. And there would always be these, you know, these experts of uh, epidemiologists and statisticians and public health authorities who would, who would whisper in, in hushed and sometimes sanctimonious tones, you can't really do that. It's not really gonna be effective. You keep the borders open because you need to have professionals going back and forth and that's how you have responses. And that was actually being trotted out in, you know, in March and April during the COVID-19 well, I should say February and March during the COVID-19 crisis just at the outset. But we realized that that traditional thinking, that classical framework was wrong. And in fact, you, you can very effectively throw up the borders temporarily. Um, and if you need to have essential travel, you have to certify it's essential and you can actually allow it to go through. But you largely basically go into a sort of a lockdown of your frontier. And that made a lot of sense, right? So we had to rethink that. So sure, the case for, for it hurting globalization is quite pronounced. But where I would actually disagree with it, and again, take the long term and say that 2020 actually is the hallmark of the value of globalization is take a look at just one example, the BioNTech vaccine, which was created in Germany by, by a couple, a man and wife who are originally from Turkey, right, who were able to partner with an American healthcare provider to actually a pharmaceutical company to make gazillion numbers of doses that require vials that are made from third party countries as well, as well as syringes, putting it all together and distributing it around the world. I mean, that shows the value of globalization. You literally could not have made, oh, and I should say the supercomputers they're using are probably coming from America and China, right? So it just shows the value of the of these global ties and these interconnections and the creativity that springs from it and the efficiency that springs from it when we put it together so i think that the the deeper lesson of 2020 and the response to it is one that enhances the value of globalization great stuff ken your book big data a revolution that will transform how we live work and think is still essential reading i think if, if anything it's more relevant in 2020 and 21 uh, than it was when you wrote it two or three years ago. Uh, everyone needs to read that. You've been telling me that you've been listening to Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers on um, uh, on, on audio. You say that uh, we should be listening rather than reading the book. What's, what's the big deal about Gladwell's news, Talking to Strangers? <laughs> so funny you should bring it up. I'm so glad you did. Um, because it's true when we were chatting about different things I've been I've been reading, I, I mentioned that and said, you know, I've, I have a copy of the book. Don't read the don't read the book. Listen to it. The reason why is that first, Malcolm Gladwell is probably the best storyteller alive today of nonfiction. Okay, and he has applied his creativity, as we know, to podcasting as well, and has done a superlative job. So by redefining the medium of the podcast. Now he's brought those two traits together, great writing and storytelling and the podcast form into his book, his nonfiction book. So what that means is that first he reads it. That's kind of obvious, of course he would. But it also means that when he is talking about say FDR's speech in the 1930s, he plays a clip of it 
When he does an interview and recounts what happens in an interview, he doesn't quote it and read aloud the quote. He actually has recorded the interview with a high quality mic so he can play it back in listening to the audio version of it. If, if he's talking about a television episode, you don't have to imagine it off the page or have him hear it as he's read it out. You actually hear the clip of that television show. Altogether, what it means is he's actually created, pioneered a new literary form that is a literary audio form. It's not an ebook. It's not an audio book. It's not a podcast. It's something different. And I have to say, um, I'm just mesmerized by the potential of this and how other people uh, who have a, who can build on that creativity and can create this entire new form. Any real books, Ken, people should be reading. You're stuck in London. I'm in California. We're all stuck inside for a few more months while we're waiting for our vaccine. Yeah, I'm, I'm so good. I mean, of course, uh, everyone should read Nicholas Christakis's, um Apollo's Arrow, which is- Yeah, we had, uh, uh, speak of the devil, we had yes. uh, Christakis on the show talking about Apollo's Arrow. So uh, it's quite I a character. Yeah, no, I, I listened to it, of course. I, I know exactly. I, I actually listened to all of his, his interviews. So of course I know that. I think he's a remarkable man. Um, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that not only has, it, one of the reasons why perhaps he understands COVID better than most is because he's also the author um, of Connected, one of the best books about network society. So he gets it more than anybody. Exactly. I mean, that's just it. I mean, he's a social scientist, he's a sociologist, and he's an MD and he's an epidemiologist. So he brought both those skills together. And it, I, I, what I find so interesting, I interviewed him as well uh, for the Economist podcast, Babbage, that I host. And what I found so incredible is it seemed as if almost his the arc of his life had led him up to be the person at the pinnacle who could be the one to decrypt the global situation that we're in. And I think he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job of it with a very clear-eyed view that made a huge contribution to, to the way the world understands this problem and tries to but get if, out of it. Yeah, if, exactly. he's, if he's listening, by the way, Chris, uh, Nicholas Christakis, we need to introduce him to Malcolm Gladwell, and he needs to create the audio book of uh, Apollo's Arrow, which would be a fascinating experience. Finally, Ken, one more straight book. I, I keep on interrupting you. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So, um, so I have it here, in, actually in front of me in my studio, and it's called Life After Google by George Gilder. And I'll read the subtitle to you because it's very self-deprecating. It is The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy. Um, so I started reading this and it was so original. I'll say hallucinatorily original uh, because he's such an incredible thinker that I realized to fully understand where he's coming from, I have to read his earlier book, which is called Knowledge and Power. And what Knowledge and Power is doing is that, and that's from about 2013, is he reframes the economy and capitalism using Claude Shannon's information theory, okay? And wow. by reframing the economy and capitalism through information theory, you understand that, that knowledge, if you will, is the catalyst for economic growth and development, not capital per se, that behind capital, capital is only an instantiation of, of knowledge and Claude Shannon's knowledge of surprise. And you need the entrepreneur who is the, is the person that wrestles with surprise to create new things that are surprising. And that's where economic growth comes from. Now, that too, I've not done justice to, but it is so original. 
I'm actually rereading it very carefully to try to understand it so that I can understand why he believes that Google is simply a flash in the pan because no one is going to want to trade information that could be could, that does that has a difficult to, to have a price setting mechanism to our personal data. Instead, we'd rather just pay for it rather than give up something that we find to be probably more precious. Now, to understand that argument, I need to really understand the, the larger uh, basis of his thought, but it does do one thing, and it's this. It does show that George Gilder is such a creative and original thinker. He's still alive, by the way, that we really ought to be talking to him and not to me. Um, yeah, well, I know George, and if you're watching George, we're after you. We're going to get you on the show to talk about life after Google. Uh, but Ken uh, Kukier, you're just as good as George, just as uh, interesting and innovative. <laughs> and I think you're more, um, you're, you're a little bit more uh, optimistic. So I want to thank you, as always, a pleasure, an honor, uh, Mr. Big Data. And we'll have you back on the show to talk about uh, how the Big Data Society is working or not working in the future. So Ken Kukier, thank you so much. Andrew, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. I always learn from you. So thank you. This has been great. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.